Christian, oh Christian, oh Christian. It's your buddy, Kato Kalen. Yeah, I know about the Society Show. I love it, that podcast. is the best. This is William Hung, and you're listening to the Society Show. Broadcasting live to tape across the nation and the world from the New Society Theater in one of the most exciting cities in King County, Seattle, Washington. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show. And now, your host, making his podcast debut, Christian Patterson. I'm sick of all these witches and warlocks and pumpkin popsums and... Welcome to the Society Show and happy Diversify Your Portfolio Day. It's actually a little late. It was back on April 23rd. Um, But if you weren't celebrating Diversify Your Portfolio Day, then you should be following the Society Show on Twitter. I mean, I was tweeting about it at society underscore show. I'm sitting there tweeting. Bing, bing, bing. Yeah, follow me for all the updates. And uh, I hope you diversified your portfolio, whether you knew about the day or not. And uh, if not, you can celebrate next year, April 23rd, 2022. Or uh, if that falls on a weekend, then just whatever day the stock market's open closest to April 23rd. Okay. Uh, Okay. And uh, you may see that this is episode 50. It's it's a pretty big landmark, but this is a solo episode. I'm Mr. Solo Dolo. It's just me, and I'm really not even going to be celebrating too much. If you want to listen to a more show celebrating the show's history a little bit, then you could check out episode 41, the one-year anniversary special. The first few months of the show, I honestly wasn't very consistent. And originally it was a bi-weekly show, so I've gotten a lot more consistent. That's why where the show's been going on for over a year now, and we're only on episode 50. But uh, I'll start with some news around society to just start out. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. Uh, so there's one story. Two people were killed in a fiery Tesla crash. And they were driving with no one at the wheel at all. There was two people, one in the front passenger seat, one in the back seat. And the the issue with this is that Elon Musk, I mean, he really emphasizes that oh, they're, they're not really self-driving. You have to be in control. And, but then other times he really overhypes how well their self-driving car mechanics work. He oversells it. But then when someone dies, he's like, oh, it's their fault. Uh, you know, they should have been doing this or that, and they weren't. He also has said, 
oh, the main reason people die in, with because of the self-driving car mechanic is because they're overconfident with the software and they get complacent with it. But none of that adds up. It, it doesn't amount to anything because you are able to drive the car with no one sitting in, in the driver's seat. And you could be like, oh, what the drivers did was stupid. And, like, I mean, it's their dumb asses who drove a car without a driver. And I totally agree. I mean, it is stupid. But that really begs the question, why are you even able to do this in a Tesla to begin with? When we drive in your car. So Elon Musk. He's just, like, a really inconsistent prick when it comes to shit like this. Like, he loves blaming people when they die in his car. It's so stupid. But then there is another thing related to this story where basically it took them four hours to put the fire out that was caused by this battery. And the the article I'm reading from, it's from The Verge, they say that Tesla has basically recommended that if the battery is on fire, just let it burn out because it will constantly reignite. And that's what was happening for them to take four hours to put this out. It just kept burning and burning as soon as they put it out. And I mean, sure, you can say, oh, you should just let the fires burn out. But that also, like, that doesn't really make sense a lot of the time. What if a Tesla catches on fire in, like, the middle of the woods uh, in California where there's crazy wildfires? You, you can't even put it out. They tried. They put it even lists how much water they doused it with, and it still took four hours. 30,000 gallons of water for four hours, over 113,000 liters. It's over 9,000! What? 9,000? Of water. And before I move on to the next story, I just really want to emphasize that uh, Elon Musk was formally denounced by the Society Show, and he is on the official denunciation list. So, uh, if he ever hears this, you're welcome on the show, buddy. Or anyone who represents him, honestly, uh, you're welcome to come on the pressure cooker. This is the pressure Another story I wanted to highlight, and I'm sure more details where it will emerge. I haven't looked into it enough, but it is the type of thing I like to talk about on this show. But uh, there was some sort of uh, attempted coup where there's like a developing rebel faction in Chad. So this basically all started because on April 19th, the longtime president of Chad, Edris Debbie, he was elected for his sixth term. And so he was kind of like a strongman figure. 
But the reason why I'm talking, um, the surface level details I want to highlight is the very day after, April 20th, 420. Dude, your dog's a stoner. President Debbie, however you say it, was killed by a group of rebels. Um, so I wonder if they were smoking that loud on 420. So, I mean, the fact that he was assassinated the day after he announced his presidency, that is pretty stunning. Um, but that's not the only reason I want to talk about it on the show. There was a New York Times article that highlighted the connection to the Libyan Civil War, which, if you listened to the early days of the show, you would know that this played heavily into what I talked about. Uh, so they talk about the coup, they basically say everything I said, but in a more straightforward <laughs> and less roundabout way. Then they say, quote, The secret of the rebels' striking success thus far lay behind them across Chad's northern border in Libya, where they have been fighting as soldiers of fortune for years amassing weapons, money, and battlefield experience, according to United Nations investigators, regional experts, and Chadian officials. In effect, the rebels used Libya's chaotic war to prepare for their own campaign in Chad. Until recently, they were employed by Khalifa Haftar, a powerful Libyan commander once championed by President Trump. They fought with weapons supplied by the United Arab Emirates, one of Mr. Haftar's main foreign sponsors. So I want to stop this here because, for one, okay, so if you don't know much about the Libyan Civil War, there are basically two factions. The Government of National Accord, which was the officially UN-recognized faction. On the other side was Khalifa Haftar with the LNA. The LNA is basically the remnants of the faction that was enabled against Gaddafi by the United States. So they morphed into basically a proxy for the UAE and Egypt. Uh, on the other hand, the GNA, it was ostensibly the faction backed by the UN, but a lot of countries like the US and France, uh, for example, were still okay with supporting the LNA in some ways. Russia did also. Turkey was one of the main countries supporting the GNA. And, I mean, they did have the the support of the UN, so that gave them a lot of validity. Even if a lot of individual companies that have power in the U UN, countries, if I said companies, I meant countries. A lot of those countries were still okay with supporting the LNA in some way. Anyway, and the LNA... LNA was the faction working for Khalifa Haftar. So I, the way I interpret this, because what Khalifa Haftar represents is a sort of, he, he represents a sort of extension of 
this type of uh, what do you call it? It's like the it's a type of politic that exists in the Arab world, and I think the perfect example is El Sisi in Egypt. He's the perfect example of that, where they are not Islamists per se. They're just all about power politics. They're all about being a, a strong man. That is what LCC is. That's what Cleve Aftar is. They're, and they're both very r involved with and representative of the military. And I just wanted to talk real quick a little bit about, I guess, there's been so many mass shootings in the U.S. There's one, I mean, there was the shooter at the FedEx facility. The shooter there was named Brandon Hole, H-O-L-E. And, I mean, I don't want to go into the details of how many people he killed, how many you know, all of that, because it, it's all besides the point. He went into his work, a workplace and killed a bunch of people, and it's really messed up, but he was a hardcore br brony. He was really into My Little Pony, and it's really depressing that he lit before he went on his spree, he posted on Facebook, quote, I hope that I can be with Applejack in the afterlife. My life has no meaning without her. It's like, this is just pretty sick. And, I mean, it's weird that there's still bronies. You know, I mean, I knew they still existed. And I guess they just went and hid out in their own little communities. But, yeah, I mean, if that doesn't say a lot about society, then what does? Do you believe in society's laws? In general, with mass shootings, I mean, people see evidence of how our our government and system is broken every day. You have to be really naive and blind to not see it. And so, I mean, what's the game plan here, guys, in regards to mass shooting? Like, they could try to do something, but here's the thing. The only thing they'd be willing to entertain is taking away guns. That's what Democrats are willing to entertain, at least. Republicans won't entertain anything. I mean, I'm really starting to think that Republicans are pro-mass shootings, because they, they, like, don't even take it seriously anymore. They, like, joke about mass shootings. And, I mean, that just goes to show how fascism is just the pure death drive of capitalism. It is capitalism seeking death because it knows it's inevitable and dragging everything down with it. Anyway, I'm a little off topic. What I was going to say is Democrats will only bring up guns because they have to know. Even though they're neoliberal, they actually believe in neoliberalism, they have have to know that people will be less inclined to go shooting up people if they have better if they have a better life just straight up what is the government doing to make our lives better seriously 
Like, I can hardly think of an example of... I mean, they couldn't even give us a $2,000 check. The American Rescue Plan is going to keep the commitment of $2,000. 600 has already gone out. $1,400 checks to people who need it. 600 has already gone out. Who cares? 2000 <laughs> They can't even do that. All the police shootings, that's a whole other can of worms. I mean, I am super grateful Derek Chauvin did get imprisoned. But ultimately, you know, it is a very small step and it doesn't really change the system at all. And unfortunately, one out of a thousand cops who do it, getting some sort of punishment, that's, that's not much. Doesn't change much. Doesn't stop the loss of life. And I just gotta say, I know a lot of people talked about this, but I gotta comment on Nancy Pelosi's statement about the George Floyd verdict. Let me pull up her exact wording. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do my Nancy Pelosi impression. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. For being there to call out your... To call out to your mom, how heartbreaking was that? And because of you, your name will always be synonymous with justice. <laughs> That's my Nancy Pelosi impression, but... uh how insane is this? Like, straight up, I, I'm not the first one to say it. I know that. There's an idea that I've talked about before. If I haven't talked about it on the show, I used to write about it on my blog. But a real pet peeve of mine is when Europeans or Americans of your more likely European or Americans of European descent when they talk about, say, the Aztecs, and I don't mean Americans as in USA, I mean all of the Americas. When they talk about the Aztecs, you know, they'll always bring up, like, oh, a lot of the, you know, the Texcoco people or the Tlaxcala people, they joined up with the, the Spaniards to fight the Aztecs. And then when you ask them why, inevitably they'll often say human sacrifice and how evil human sacrifice is and i mean it's not like i'm pro human sacrifice but let me spin it another way all of those other regional people in pre-columbia americas they also practice human sacrifice mayas did human sacrifice um, a bunch of other groups did it as well. Basically, anyone in Mesoamerica, and as far as I know, a lot of people in, like, the Andean region, like, where the Incan Empire was, they were all doing human sacrifices. It, at least in the case of Mesoamerica, it comes from the Olmecs, 
which is basically the the progenitor society of Mesoamerican societies. So, no, the natives did not team up with the Spaniards because they were being ritually sacrificed. Because they did it too. They were they teamed up with the Spaniards because they were being conquered by the Aztecs. And you might be like, sure, uh, of course, but uh, ritual sacrifice was part of it. Well, I mean, that's like saying that barbarians... Germanic peoples fought against Rome because they crucified people. No, because the Germans had ways of ritually sacrificing. I mean, I consider crucifying someone not particularly different than ritually sacrificing them. I mean, Germans had their own methods of doing that. You might be wondering, how the hell does this pertain to Nancy Pelosi? But I'll get there. And what those uh, people defending the Spaniards often, you know, what they leave out is, you know, they say the Spaniards are so good because they fought the evil barbarian Aztecs who were ritually sacrificing. What they don't point out is it was just around that time, a little bit... Before then is when the Spanish Inquisition was at its height and, you know, there were witch hunts all over Europe. There, If those type of religious killings don't count as ritual sacrifice, then, like, what does? And another thing that I try to emphasize, well, one, one other thing I try to emphasize is that Mesoamerican warfare was a lot more civilized than European warfare. Europeans had a tendency, not always, but they tend to conduct war like they just try to massacre the other side as much as possible. For the most part, yes, that is true. I mean, that's how the Romans fought, that is how they fought in the Middle Ages. On the other hand, in Mesoamerica... Mayan, Mayas, and Aztecs, and others often fought to for captives. So, a lot of those times, those captives would be held as slaves. Yeah, I'm, and also, you know, that's another thing. They say, oh, they kept slaves. Well, they were a primitive pre-feudal society, and every economy that is pre-feudal is necessarily slave-oriented. It is it is a terrible thing, like, I'm not defending it, but it, it, they were a different type of slavery than the chattel slavery that was imported to the Americas. It was very much more like the slave system in ancient Rome. But And so not all of them were slaves either. Uh, some of them would be ritually sacrificed. And they would hate that. They were basically being ritually sacrificed to someone else's gods. But they would typically ritually sacrifice the people who were most crucial, who were like the most crucial elements to the opposing military. So if they capture, they would capture a military leader, then ritually sacrifice them. In European warfare, that military leader would be would be decapitated before they left the battlefield. 
So, all of this is to say, how does this tie back to Nancy Pelosi? I really want to emphasize her use of the word sacrifice. People objected to this because they were like, it wasn't a sacrifice because he didn't voluntarily do it. I'm sure he would love to have his life, and we all wish he could have his life. We didn't want him to be sacrificed. He didn't choose to be a sacrifice, so he's not a sacrifice. And I totally get that line of sentiment. I agree with it, but I actually pulled up the definition of sacrifice, and it it is interesting because there's different definitions for it, but this one, the main one, the first one, an act of slaughtering an animal or a person or surrendering a possession as an offering to God or to a divine or supernatural figure. Let me make it a little more conceptual. A sacrifice is when you kill something or surrender something You materially alter the world by killing or offering in order to achieve a metaphysical effect, right? Like, it's it's for a supernatural effect is the intended consequence. So what Nancy Pelosi is saying, she's basically saying... George Floyd, sorry, but you are the person we are ritually sacrificing. And she's saying, you were ritually sacrificed by the police. And we became better people for it. But that's not actually what happened. That's That's where it's wrong. That's the issue. She's saying society... Society ritually as in it is a ritual of our society for police to kill people acting out a ritual sacrifice george floyd this is her own words sacrifice your life for justice that is the metaphysical effect he died so we could have more justice it's honestly a complete it's just a disgusting way of thinking and i mean you can i you don't need me to tell you that i just really highlighted my thoughts on sacrifice and how the idea of sacrifice is used against oppressed people it's used against others they're they're captured and made in to a sacrifice they're killed for gods they're killed for an inquisition they're killed for this or that or this or that george floyd was a sacrifice in a purely as if americanism is a religion that's what he was quote unquote sacrifice for he just didn't choose it and it was against his will he was a ritually sacrificed And Pelosi seems to believe that that kept this system going. The fact that he was, quote, sacrifice. (laughs) 
In the uh, second part of the show, I'm going to highlight two articles, but before I get to that, you know, I wanted to talk about this European Super League stuff, and I personally know very little about European sports, and so I'm not going to talk about it that much. I'm just going to talk about what I understand from it and uh, why it ultimately didn't work out. So the European sports system, they use a system of promoting and relegating. So a team, you know, let's say take the MLB. Here in Washington, we have the Mariners, Seattle Mariners, the major league team. Down in Tacoma, they have the Tacoma Rainiers, a minor league team. Up in Everett, they have the Everett Aqua Sox, another minor league team. And they will always stay in the league that they are, unless it's uh, dictated by Major League Baseball or something like that. Or, you know, some, some other factor comes up. But w- whatever those factors are, are all dictated on a... Um, centrally organized capitalist organization level. If they use the European system that's used in European soccer, for example, uh, you know, the Mariners have been pretty bad for a long time. They're they're pretty decent this year, and I hope they continue doing well. But, you know, uh, Seattle Mariners have a reputation as being one of the most disappointing sports teams in any North American league. In a European system, they would be relegated to the major league or the minor leagues, one league down uh, because of poor performance. And one of the best minor league teams would be promoted in their place. The only way that can work is because they organize their sports in a more decentralized way without this like corporate body like the MLB or the NHL, NFL, NBA hanging over it. So they have a, it's a much more like a federation or confederation of leagues and uh, that's a lot more dynamic. Personally, I find it way more interesting and the fact that it is less of this like capitalistic creation. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's totally capitalist profiting millions and millions, hundreds of millions off European soccer. I don't mean to say it's not capitalist, but it's just not structured from the ground up to be most efficient for the capitalists. There's still a lot of elements of community preserved in European football, whereas in the United States, once a market is no longer profitable for whatever reason, they're going to move that team out of there the first chance they get. Uh, as I say, from Seattle, where you know we used to have a very popular a- NBA team called the Supersonics, and for a lot of really stupid reasons, they ended up getting moved to Oklahoma City, a market that is much smaller than ours, um, and it was really all for just like bureaucratic complications and infighting within capitalist factions. Anyway. This so European European soccer. Some of the teams were planning on making a say MLB or NBA inspired uh, league called the European Super League, but I mean, and they're not really doing it anymore. Eight teams backed out. 
last I saw, and it just kind of fell off, so I, I assumed it just stopped working, but it would be, like, the worst of the worst, so it would be, like, say MLB was, like, 50 teams, 100 teams, something like that, a lot more teams, and then f 15 or 16 of those teams said, you know what, we're just going to start our league within this league. Now, some of you guys can play with us, but obviously we're the best, so we're going to be the main people. And the crazy thing is they weren't even going to plan to implement the, the system used in American sports for recruiting players. So in Europe, they just recruit players and they join a team. And since they use the relegation and promotion system, then recruiting is a lot more competitive. In the U.S., they use the, the lottery and draft system, and they're able to do that because it's a lot more centrally organized. But because of that, American sports has things like salary caps, and they have mechanisms to keep the teams more fair and not just become highest bidder wins i mean to some extent it has to be highest bidder wins but they try to clamp down on it and this european super league wouldn't have anything else to do with that so i'm glad it seemingly didn't work And uh, another story before I touch on these two articles that I want to end the show with. Um, <laughs> I'm really just going to read the headline. South Korean police want to question the Belgian ambassador's wife after store incident prompts anger. And the store incident in question is the ambassador's wife slapped a clerk at a store. Now, I would be pissed at that if I was South Korean also. This first article I want to highlight um, out of the two. So this is called The Forever Maskers, published by Eve Pizer in the New York Magazine. So, quote, Robin Argenti cannot yet envision a future in which he doesn't wear a mask. Quote, We don't know if it's going to ever be over, end quote. The 57-year-old res resident of upstate New York said of the pandemic, blah, 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 she, she's concerned about her health, millions will refuse vaccination, I will be masked up for many years, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so there's a lot of anecdotal evidence in this story about different people who will probably wear masks forever. And honestly, I think some people will totally do this. But I also think the idea that there will be a large group, a faction of people called the forever maskers or called anything really a noticeable a noticeable fragment of society who are always wearing masks because of coronavirus i don't think that's going to happen i think people will eventually when we don't have any mask requirements i think some people will wear masks more but i also think this this is 
a lot of coping about the fact that, you know, a lot of people have developed shut-in tendencies during the coronavirus. And they're like, oh no, I'm getting pulled out of this comfortable world where I can stay at home. I totally get that because, you know, I've been working at home through the entire COVID situation. And I recently got a job where I'll be working in person. So I I kind of get it, you know. I'm like, well, I'll miss this or that. I'll miss waking up and rolling out of bed and making coffee and blah, blah, blah and all that. But I think once it becomes more clear what everyday life has been like, I think this faction will just kind of wither away. I think people will totally get used to it right away. They won't feel like they're going to get used to it, but they will. Just do it! And there is one other thing that is really peculiar to me about this article. And maybe my listeners will disagree. This might be an unpopular opinion. But a common sentiment I've seen, primarily from liberal people, is, you know, praising how they have ne- have not gotten sick all of the coronavirus because they're wearing a mask and they're like, oh, I feel my best health. This is so healthy. I'm sorry. I completely disagree with that. I have never been in worse health than in quarantine. You know, my back is constantly aching. I just feel like crap in a lot of ways. My sinuses are all dry uh, from being inside so much. And I mean... You're probably listening to this and thinking, well, they're talking about actually getting sick, not the side effects of being inside. But, I mean, honestly, getting a cold, even once a year, twice a year, more than that, I mean, yeah, someone in here says they were getting a cold every month, but I don't know about that. I mean, maybe you have allergies or something, but... I just can't really imagine that all these people were getting these sicknesses that are just way worse than being inside. I mean, if you wear your mask all the time, you're going to get terrible acne. I just really, I mean, okay, so maybe once a year you don't get a cold that's worth wearing a mask. Give me a freaking break. There are so <laughs> You'd rather have acne all over your face than get a couple colds a year. I just... I don't buy it. I really... I think people are dramatic about the like, Oh, I used to think I was just sick all the time and now I'm so healthy. It's like... I don't know what you're doing in quarantine, but I just don't buy it. Where will we go? When the quarantine thing done and everybody touch road. The last thing I want to comment on, so, you know, last week there was this article from the Orlando Orlando Sentinel going around. I can barely call it an article. It was a think piece, and it was really more like a whiny blog post. But at the time, that morning, I was able to click on it and read the whole thing. Now it's behind a paywall, so I don't really know who would pay to read this crap. The fact that anyone would pay to read this crap is freaking insane. But I read the article, so I can't read it word for word. But uh, 
Basically, this guy who claims to be a Christian conservative Republican, he made this post whining about how he loves to go to Disneyland or Disney World with his family, but he can't anymore because it's too damn woke. When the revolution comes, you can bloody well be sure that your head's going to be first on the chopping block. And uh, so one of his objections is he is really pissed off that Disney will allow the people who work there, their employees in the park. Yeah, those employees, they're allowed to have tattoos. <laughs> the devil. Devil. Don't mess with the devil, buddy. We're number one. We beat anybody. We're the devils. The devils. <sighs> the thing is, like, I remember when I was younger, I remember talking to my siblings about working to Disneyland. I was never considering it much. Maybe some of my siblings were more. But one of the rules is you can't have any visible tattoos. And I was just like, that is so stupid. And that was when I was like 15 or 16. And the fact that it was still a rule until now. I mean, I was 15 or 16 like 14 or 15 years ago. <laughs> 14 or 13. Uh, the fact that it was still a rule until recently is like mind-blowing. But uh, here's the thing, dude. I'm sorry, Belle, you know, Princess Belle, Princess Ariel, they're not gonna be walking around with, like, tattoo sleeves, dude, and I'm, I'm sorry, but you can deal with the guy selling you a, like, $40 burger at Disneyland, you can deal with him, uh, you know, having a tattoo on his arm, I'm sorry, like, he, he complains about how there's something really immersive about Disneyland, and I get it. I keep saying Disneyland, but, I mean, this is Disney World, but I've only been to Disneyland, so I'm probably gonna keep saying that, but... So, he he talks about how immersive Disney World is, and I get it. Like, I've been to Disneyland. It is very... It is a step above most theme parks, right? Like, they put a ton of attention into the little details, and that's why it's so highly regarded. But the fact that he thinks that someone having tattoos would ruin that immersion, like, you're not going to a renaissance fair, and even people at renaissance wouldn't complain about tattoos. You know, people can have tattoos in the world that Mickey Mouse exists in. And, yeah, there was one specific comment in it, in it that I thought was so dumb. He's like, I'm a Christian conservative Republican. And so, as you can see, I truly disagree with Disney on a lot of stuff. It's like, dude, Walt Disney was uh maybe not a nazi per se but i mean he was the founding member of the motion picture alliance which included you know like classic hollywood conservative cranks such as john wayne what john ford what which is sad because you know john ford is a lot more talented than john wayne Ronald Reagan. What? Ayn Rand. What? Yeah, John Ford's way more, <laughs> way more talented than all those people, including Walt Disney. Walt Disney really didn't do a lot of the actual animation work.
So the Motion Picture Alliance, I mean, that was basically the origin of the Red Scare in Hollywood. Uh, They were an anti-Semitic, you know, right-wing organization, and they claimed they were against the infiltration of communism and fascism into Hollywood. But they were all, if not uh, fascistic, they were hyper-conservative and really not that different from the Nazis in a lot of ways. And, I mean, although that's besides the point that Walt Disney employed Heinz Haber, who was a Nazi soldier, Haber was brought to the U.S. under Operation Paperclip, uh, which was the government program to protect Nazi scientists and Nazi science secrets from the Soviets. Now, Haber, he wasn't a member of the Nazi party, but he was a pilot for the Luftwaffe, uh, Nazi Germany's Air Force, and he was a huge Hitler supporter. He was basically like an independent voter, non-Republican, who loves Trump, and is pretty much super conservative, but just hasn't really interrogated their their fascistic beliefs that are hammered into them by society. And, I mean, he was a member of Nazi-adjacent groups, too. Like, so, I mean, the guy's kind of uh, basically a Nazi, and he got employed by Walt Disney. And... Of course, one of the most prolific Nazi scientists protected by the U.S. under Operation Paperclip was Werner von Braun, who we know because he was running NASA. NASA is the German breakaway government. And here's the crazy thing. So, Werner von Braun, probably the most famous person protected by Operation Paperclip. Heinz Haber, who again was employed by Disney directly after World War II, Heinz Hayer and Werner von Braun then went on to host the Disney show called Man in Space Together. And the Eisenhower administration recruited Heinz Haber to create an episode for the Disneyland show. Apparently they used to have a show. And the episode was called Our Friend the Atom, which was used as pro-nuclear propaganda. Oh, hell, let's just do what we always do. Hijack some nuclear weapons and hold the world hostage. I mean, let that be a lesson. If anyone ever tells you that uh, Disney is not collaborating with the government or not being fed what to do by the government, I mean, the government's been telling Disney what to do for since it's been created, essentially, and that's only become more institutionalized but also more covert ever since since then and i mean i could go into some more of these guy this guy's whining critiques about disney like how they're going to uh make the jungle cruise not racist and they're gonna change splash mountain because of the song of the south all of that i will say it's like yeah disney probably should do that but at the same time a lot of their doing it, like in the case of the Song of the South, they just want to pretend that was never even a Disney thing. They want to make it Mandela affected. They want to make it as if that movie never existed because it makes them look so bad. They're not trying to learn from anything or improve. They're really just covering their asses. And then guys like this, 
get outraged that they're covering their asses and be like, stupid wokies, woke billionaires, you you hate my people because you're covering your capitalist ass. It's really stupid, and uh, I don't normally talk about things like that, but uh, that article just, uh, it's funny, man. Anyway, that has been The Society Show. Hope you've enjoyed listening. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Christian I-Z Cool. Christian is cool. Is spelled I-Z. You can follow the podcast as mentioned earlier at society underscore show. You can write into the podcast at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, you can leave a voicemail at any time. 971-238-4138. Thank you for listening to the Society Show. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Mm. The Mayans smoked penis blood. And there are documents here so disturbing. Warner Von Braun, the guy who directed all six moon missions, was a Nazi. That is nasty. As a man who looks like he bathes in Cheeto dust. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. Yeah.